0: was really the uh, the one that that pushed that and said, why don't we just sell everything up, get out of your corporate job and and do something else. So I I just said yes.
1: (laughs) Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Brad Scott. Brad is the founder and operator of Transmutation Proprietary Limited, Transmutation is a plastic recycling workshop and retail outlet based in Robe, South Australia. Brad has a deep concern for the environment and has committed to taking on the plastic problem head on. Transmutation takes difficult to recycle plastic waste and changes it into quality products that will last much longer than the original product and itself is designed to be recycled again. Brad and his partner Narelle aim to educate customers about recycling, reusing and reducing. What is so incredible about the work Brad is doing is that not only is it decreasing landfill and pollution, but illustrating what the future treatment of waste products can look like while putting a value on what we currently call rubbish. Transmutation revolves around four pillars, sustainability, craftsmanship, community and innovation. Please visit transmutation.com.au to find out more. Brad was born in rural Queensland and lived a normal life until tragedy struck as a teenager. Brad's life was turned upside down and he admits that things could have been very different today had it not been for a few chance events in his life. One of these was meeting his wife Narelle on a bus in 1985. Another was joining the army which provided an education, leadership skills and the catalyst for a very interesting life indeed. Brad has had a very successful but unconventional career and this has continued to this day. Brad and I discuss philosophy, politics, climate, challenging stereotypes, life, love, and a whole lot more. If you want to feel inspired to take action while getting a decent dose of reality along the way, you do not want to miss out on this conversation. So now, without further delay, I bring you Brad Scott. Brad, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you, Matthew. So to get started, uh, how would you describe the work that you're doing and, and the lifestyle you have at the moment? Well it's
0: quite quite an artisan sort of uh lifestyle that we've picked now, which has never been conceived of, I suppose, a couple of years ago. So I used to do um corporate sort of work with business turnarounds, really. I used to work with big logistic companies like Tolls and Patrick's, and I'd been in the army and I'd sort of uh, done a lot of corporate stuff after that. So where we are now is is light years away from that, which is good. <laughs> um so my wife and I yeah left Brisbane probably about five years, four years ago now, I suppose. Packed, uh, sold everything, travelled around for a while and then ended up in Robe, South Australia, recycling bread tags. So, um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's been a bit of a journey, but we've um, we've enjoyed every minute of it. And they're really, this is one of the best jobs I've had with our small business now. So it has a lot more meaning, uh, not just for me, but for my wife as well. For us, we are a lot more... Uh, we're together every day. Basically we work together and uh, come home together. We've been married 31 years I think now so we're we're used to each other by now but um, it's been a great change from uh, what we were doing when I was uh, going off to work in the morning and not coming back till six o'clock or seven o'clock. So We're
1: going to have a deep dive into into your business and what you're doing and the artisan work that you you do but it seems that your the change that you've had has both been profoundly um, life-changing personally as well as to provide meaning in the work as well. I'd like to go back in time a little bit to find out what was what was life like I guess in the in the early days of of your marriage even or, or where you met and then going from there into you know how life panned out and it was probably panning out you know ticking all the boxes along the way. What was it like that journey? And and then how did you end up making a decision to make a change?
0: Yeah. Okay. It depends how far I go back, I suppose. So when I was 12 years old, I was in a car accident with my mother and she passed away in that accident. And my brother was also in the accident. So he's very badly injured. So from that point, have a recurring thought all the time where i was sitting by the side of the road and the ambulance was arriving and, and all those sorts of things were going on and I, I thought what happens now like i i really you know as a 12 year old had no idea what happens now after such a an event i guess and i remember thinking that at the time and um, uh, and of course life moves on that's what happens and um, then you've got to you know handle it <laughs> Beyond that point, and then my, my dad passed away in a car accident when I was 15. So oh. sort of lost both parents early, which was traumatic, obviously. But uh, it does change, I think, the way you think about things. So on the back of all that, I've met my uh, my current, my, my only wife, not my current wife, my only wife <laughs> when I was 15 and she was 16 on the school bus. So I think all those things have been important to me, obviously, going forward, I, I look back at it now and they they were quite dramatic markers in my life. Um, and then I went off and joined the Army. and I think a bit of that's a reaction to my parents as well. Um, and then my girlfriend at the time, which is, was Narelle, basically uh, followed me down after three years down in Canberra. She came down for the final year of Duntroon and then we, we scooted back up to miraborough which is sort of where we're from, Miraborough boppel area in Queensland. We scooted back there after I graduated in 90 from Duntroon with uh, um, a fair few of the boys from the Army and, and Air Force and they you know, had the swords drawn in the wedding, so it was all very flash for Maryborough, but we have pretty much been together since that. So 1990 is when we got married and it was on the back of of all those events. So an Army officer then, you know, been my childhood sweetheart, if you like, and that's how we sort of started life. Uh, so it was... It was quite, um, I guess, in the scheme of it, conservative, I suppose, my backgrounds, you know, very, uh, um, from politically very national party sort of territory, and then you've got the army and you've got rugby and you've got all those sorts of um, things that sort of shaped our early life together. But what's come out of that, I guess, is um, I'm very curious. I've always been very curious. So the journey from there to where I am now has been uh, wonderful, really. (laughs) And you look back... And you you always, I think, look back in retrospect and and see life and go, okay, well, that's why that happened or that's why that happened. But if you try to look forward from where you were, I would have never pictured where I am now and and, and things I know now. Completely um, opposite, I suppose, uh, and paradoxical, some of the stuff that I think now in my mind takes me compared to where I was in my youth. So, you know, almost a different person, I guess, but... I think the seeds are obviously always there. Where you end up and how you develop, I think is is quite amazing. I think the mind's quite amazing actually. And what it lets you know and what it lets you think. <laughs> I think that's been my journey in is 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 loosening up the strings around your mind. Because once it, it opens up, you can sort of go anywhere with it, I guess. But I think at the at the start I'd turn myself quite closed mind, really. Um and now I'm hopefully uh, at the other end of that. That spectrum
1: on on that early life and those you know those traumatic events early on brad you you mentioned there was two car accidents which is obviously something that you know to happen to anyone you know one accident to happen to anyone at all would would seem catastrophic and and he's catastrophic but so well i wouldn't say rare because they happen to somebody we hear that about them in the news all the time yeah and and they both happen to you I'm just wondering, you know, what was when you look back at before those events, and you you talked about being from a conservative area. What are the what are the strongest memories you have of your parents, and and do you think they helped to shape that curiosity that's within you?
0: Uh, Undoubtedly, but because it was so early in my life, it's um it's hard to because so much has happened, I guess, since then, and memories fade. You know what I mean? I had good memories Mm. um, of. My childhood—I had, I, I had, had a good childhood. I didn't have a traumatic childhood at all. You know what I mean? It was uh, um, in Merriburn and, and in Boppel, We had horses, we had motorbikes, we had cars driving around. We had, uh, you know, cricket in the backyard. All those sort of great memories of, of family life were there. I think now I look back. There was some. You know, there was obviously some other issues as well going on that you don't. That you gloss over, I suppose, but nothing. I would consider traumatic in my childhood until those events. It was quite um quite a normal childhood, really.
1: And then that meeting meeting Narelle, would you have said that that your relationship, I guess, your friendship early on was shaped by some grief and loss that you were still holding on to and and, you, and that was part of the fabric of it?
0: Oh, I think so. I think it's gotta be. Yeah. And and I think Narelle did um pretty well, really, because i I, would, I came with some baggage, obviously. so um mm. I was um I don't think I was over clingy but uh, I think <laughs> the gist of it is that um definitely I was uh, I had no parents at that time. So the two things were happening, I suppose i I was um, going a bit uh, a bit wild, I suppose, so um, you know drinking a fair bit and hanging around with people I sh- probably shouldn't have, although looking back, I wouldn't have changed a, a thing of it. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, But you know what I mean? I was, um, I was a bit of a leash unit, I suppose, as a teenager. So I think and the Army mm. pulled that back into line fairly
1: well. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. So did, did you choose the Army or did the Army choose you? How did that work?
0: I went to become an electrician in grade 10, and the, 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 the guy I went and seen to be his apprentice looked at my marks and he basically said, go back to year 12. Uh, complete that, come back and see me and I'll put you on. I said, okay. So while I was in year 11, um, the Army recruiter came around, told us all lies, and I thought that sounded better. So <laughs> I um, I joined and, and I actually joined um, Defence Academy and ended up getting a, a scholarship. They did all of the tests and everything they needed to do and the, the application part, if you like, while I was in year 11 and um, gave me a scholarship, which pretty much, Gave me eight hundred dollars towards year twelve, and if I passed year twelve, then I was in. So I sort of already knew I was um, heading down to that all the way through year twelve. I just had to to pass my academics. So that was a it was a turning point as far as um, knowing yourself a bit more, your intelligence, if you know what I mean. Um, mm. I think when I growing up, you I've written a book, twenty fifteen. I call it pigeonholes. And it sort of um, was quite cathartic for me, uh, but it's all about stereotypes. And I think I've um, one of my earliest memories is breaking through these barriers of, sort of stereotypes, I suppose. So I guess I had this thinking that I was from the country. Um, Brisbane was a long way away, you know, like that was the big city. So it was quite sort of a hayseed attitude, I suppose, to life, and there's a big wide world out there and how do people get jobs down in the big city to getting in the Army and then going, okay, well, they've picked me for a reason. They've confirmed, I suppose, that you've got some sort of intelligence and they want to send you to uni. I would never have gone to university if I hadn't have joined the Army.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so getting then into university and doing chemistry and geography wouldn't have happened if I went to a civilian university because I didn't actually have the marks to do that. So I had to talk the Army into it as well. So I actually didn't understand the systems at all at that at early age. I had no idea. So all of those things sort of fell into place to a certain extent to um, to get me a decent education. So that was that was the first thing. And then Narelle's been my absolute you know rock all the way through my life. So I'd be in a different place if it wasn't for her.
1: Yeah, you talked about the the army is specifically at the start, you know, saying that they they told you these lies. But as you um then sort of mentioned that they allowed you to to find yourself, find you know that you do have a passion for for learning and knowledge, and and that you're actually able to um to succeed in that when when given the opportunity. How did you end up falling out of the army, and what do you take? What memories do you take with you from from that time?
0: So the army was um, the people I met in the army were fantastic as far as my classmates. And they're, they're now actually, we're, we're quite a bit of a, a unit, I suppose. There's people out there, of my classmates, um, that are doing really big things in the world at the moment. So and it was good to, you know, to know them quite personally. And any one of us, I guess, can pick up the phone or send an email or send a message to each other, even though we haven't spoken for, you know, 10 years or so, and you get full support. And there, there is definitely a brotherhood that comes out of, you know, being in a service and going through those sort of trying moments together. The army is an institution, though. I'm quite cynical about, and I, I think my cynicism for for life and politics and everything in general comes from a um, <laughs> comes from a place of experiencing a lot of that firsthand. So, mm. how I got out of the army was I got promoted to a captain in a uh, a small engineering and um, and logistics unit uh, i had a major above me and then that was fine for the first year and then that major um who was quite good he left as is the normally posting cycle and then the second year i had a new major come in and he started taking money if you like from the the taxpayer so pretty much getting checks signed over to him so he could drive down and sort out his divorce case in adelaide and, and but misuse of public funds so i basically refused to sign those checks and said that, you know, I'm not going to do this, this is not right. He then got the senior public servants to take over that role and pretty much we were at war from that point forward. (laughs) And um, I reported him to the military police and they investigated him and found out that what I'd said was true. And then reality kicked in where the the people above him and me and uh, the lieutenant colonels and everyone else basically placed ranks around him and wanted to, um, you know, didn't want the reputation of uh, of the Army to, to suffer. So that's my experience, I guess, of um, being a whistleblower, I guess is the terminology, and um, I was really happy to... I, I got an audience with the Major General and, and told him what I thought of his Army at the end of the whole experience, and we left on those terms. <laughs> so... So I didn't intend to leave the army when I did, but in hindsight um, it was one of the best decisions um, I ever made as far as sticking to my guns. I was um, really quite naive, like it was a, you know, it was a fabulous career really from where I'd come from to where I was heading and I just, I don't know, I gave it up without question because of the the principle of the whole thing. And and the other thing that came with that was Narelle's, we had two children then, our, our two kids, basically did not question my decision at all so um she's been on this roller coaster with us the whole time and and the fact that you know 100 percent support to to get out of that sort of career on a principle um, was fantastic yeah it was a good chapter of my life i, I don't regret anything i did in the army but I'm, I'm cynical of the organization and so when you see things today about sas and other things i have no doubt stuff's happening um, at all. Mm. Just sad in a way, but it's also, um, it's reality.
1: It is reality. And as you said, um, you know, you had some great mates and mates that you still keep in touch with and, and good people and and they, you know, they actually look to to give scholarships and opportunities to, to good people too. It's not just sometimes what the stereotype, as that word again, sort of the stereotype of someone that... Um, just wants to shoot guns and go off to yeah. some foreign land there's a diversity of people within that within that group definitely
0: and, and that's every group and i think that's probably been the biggest thing that i've um, i've learned in my life's journey um the, the stereotype thing really annoys me one of my english teachers still sticks with me mr Bykoff. He, um, he basically stood up in class one day and said the person you see here You have one image of me, which is the school teacher, and and the image of me from my my family is different, and the image of me from my friends is different, and the image of me from this club that I'm in is completely different. And I thought about that a lot, actually, because, you know, the people we see is just one side of of how we see them and in in what context we see them. And then it's the same with organisations and groups. as you know, and, and politics is the same... are good people in there there are bad people in there there's everything in between in there and to just think of a group in a certain way is is very um it's it's not reality but it's how humans actually think so it's it's far more easy to think of a stereotype and a box um and, and compartmentalize things in our head than to actually you know critically think about it and go well that's actually not right you know not not all of these people in this group are doing this and not all of them are like that. And, and I think that's where we get into our, you know, our racism and, and all of our other black and white thinking around the world is, is because we think in stereotypes.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I didn't want to delve into something so deep so so early, but I'm, I'm sort of... <laughs> Sorry. We're, we're, no, no, we're here <laughs> and I'm glad we are because I've got a couple of questions um, on that. The first one, the idea of a system sort of creating, I guess, the mess that's within it versus yep. the people within that system, you know, are the system. Uh, where do you stand in that? Because I have chats with people often <laughs> about this inequality in the world, all the problems of the world, everything comes down to this system that's not really within our control. And and what I've learned, I think, a bit more, I've, I've had that view, but I'm starting to understand that there's also a bit of a responsibility on us as individuals as a part of that system to, to realise that we are servicing that system, we are making sure that stays afloat and it's up to us to, to break it down if we feel like we need to. And and I feel like you you attempted that. Somehow as a young man you were brave enough to, to go against, I guess, someone more senior than you and, and um, it would have been much easier to just turn a blind eye but you didn't so there's two questions within this there's the broader sort of meta question of what do you think about the system versus the individual and and the roles and and how we got to the place that we are at today in in many areas and then also how you found yourself standing up to to something that you felt was wrong
0: yeah so um i think the system questions is actually paramount to to our existence and i'm i can't say i'm going to probably give too many people much hope (laughs) but um, corporations for example are another example same as an army same as a a, you know a church Um, there's a there's a whole lot of people that make up the system but the system exists as its own sort of entity in a certain way and you know you'll get a lot of um, people who say you know i'm following orders or that's how what everyone else does and uh, that's how we think it's This group mentality that if you put those person on their own, they they would probably give you, you know, without any constraints, so probably give you a different answer. So Mm. it's it's people who do question it, making a decision like you said to go along with it or not go along with it, and that's the. And I think that early, um, from my point of view, it it really did um, help structure the rest of my life, if you like, because. Nothing bad happened. I mean, you know, besides the career, and it was quite challenging at the time. And and they sent me to Brisbane uh, while my you know Narelle and the kids were still out of this other unit. You know, there was, there was stuff going on and suffering during that period. But at the end of it, I walked out of that and got a a job that had you know two and a half times the money that I was on. It was a better position, um, and it changed the rest of my life going forward in the corporate point of view. So everything that's happened you yeah, know, they have silver linings and it's, it's a cliche, but if you take it that, you know, things go down, they go back up and they go down again, things were always changing. So whatever situation you find yourself in, that situation will change. It's it's getting the confidence to realise that that's the case. We think the corporation, I find that, for example, there's no evil, in my opinion anyway, people who are sitting there, you know, plotting, patting their white cat and saying, you know, we're going to get rid of this or get rid of those people or do this or, or lots of the things that uh, that modern day corporations do. It's, it's set up in a certain way. So the system is set up so that entity is designed to make as much profit as possible for shareholders. So if, if you're in, you know, senior management, your job is to get as much profit as you can for your shareholders. If you're at the coalface, your job is to turn up, um, you know, put in some sort of performance and get paid by the hour for whatever you're supposed to do. And then the middle manager is supposed to motivate that person coming in to do whatever task they're supposed to do for the, for the time period and also report up to senior management and squeeze the profit out for the, the shareholder. So they're on a hiding to nothing. As a middle manager, you, you, you're totally trying to play two paradoxical games. And if you want to become a senior manager, then, you know, you go that way and you try to squeeze as much out of the employees. And if you want to be a, a good leader um, and, and boss, then you probably want to concentrate more on the people and what their motivation is, and making them, you know, do a good job. And so the, the two don't are mutually exclusive in a certain way. So, so that's the, to me, that's the, the system is set up to fail. So you, um, you know, you've got middle managers, uh, and I was one that, that tried to focus on my people. I, I actually loved that part of um, of, a, of the job, being a, a leader. I, I, I love getting a team and you know making it work well, and and if that turned into profit, then then so be it. And most often it did, <laughs> so that helped. But when you get decisions made purely on uh, you know spreadsheets and, and redundancies and um, and ways to make things more efficient from a quite a mechanised, impersonal view, which is what corporations are designed to do, essentially. Then, at some stage, it all comes into conflict. So, uh, you know, I don't see, like I said, that it's, it's <laughs> there's a whole lot of people running around doing what they're supposed to do, and the system set up in complete conflict between the bottom and the top.
1: Yeah, and I, I I see that often, and and I guess our proof is the amount of incompetent. Incompetent leaders that lack empathy and compassion and understanding for for people that they're supposed to represent, and we see it in in politics, in companies like Amazon. You know, there, there are so many examples of, I guess, the cream that rises to the top not being necessarily the um, the best leaders, motivators. They're they're the best at what the system needs, which is that profit driven system, and. Or in politics, you know, the, the game is geared to re-election and doing what your, I guess, the stakeholders of your, um, the lobbyists need, or, or the, you know, the, the the people that fund the party, or, and even with me as an educator, as a teacher, you do see it too that there are many people that sort of are great teachers, really passionate about education and about student growth and learning, and often, not always, but often you do see a change within people that are in the middle management area that just one day turn around and say hey you know i've got to start thinking about the plan of the system to get ahead i i i can't really focus on the kids yeah. that are take too long anymore i can't focus on that teacher that needs extra help i'm here to to make things work really quickly and efficiently and effectively for whatever we're trying to achieve and, and sometimes the purpose of our you know of representative government is disappeared or of education disappears or of of either healthcare, you know all of these industries that are even the ones that are so great for you know and and necessary oftentimes end up losing their their way so i i get what you're saying yeah on a it, systemic it, level
0: it's, it's um it's set up to lose its way. That's what I guess. What I'm saying. Any example of a of a corporation doing anything different is a, is an anomaly. It's not the it's not the norm. The vast majority, and a school is a corporation these days. You know, it's exactly the same. It's it's set up as a as a profit center now, in the in the way we think about it, and the governments think about it. People in politics, especially when people enter politics, and I've had a go at politics because I thought at one stage in my life that was a good way to change things, and I now know that that's ridiculous. But <laughs> at the time, I thought that was, a uh, you know, a good option. Um, you have a lot of people going into, uh, I'll pick on major parties because um, the independents are and, and the Greens, for example, and the smaller parties are a bit of a different kettle of fish. But the major parties, you'll have a lot of good people joining those to change the world and go in and make a difference. and you will find and they will find that that hardly ever happens because once you're in there, you've got some decisions to make and, and your decisions are, do I want to rise to the top of this organisation, you know, or do I want to hang on to my ideals um, and really what I want to do? And, and then the two are mutually exclusive. So you're right, your, your good leaders disappear, um, I think, early in that process, which is unfortunate
1: yeah and I guess we do remember those that are because they are few and far between. Um, and and I guess you're a, a proof of that with your um leaving the army. I mean, you know you potentially a very principled you know good leader that that left because of of the system. What about moving into the corporate space now, which you found again was a system in and of itself, but there were many personal rewards, I guess, from that. What was that process like?
0: It was good. Um, my first job out of the army was on the waterfront, and uh, it was quite amazing because in the army you um, you have that extra authority, if you like, that um, you know your soldiers are supposed to do is what you what you tell them because you've got that level of authority. Where on the waterfront, uh, <laughs> I came in as a uh, pre the dispute, so I worked for Patrick's in '95, and the um, the, the big dispute wasn't until '98. Uh, I was 25 years old, so I was really an experiment from Patrick's point of view before they kicked everyone out. So they were at their sort of wits' end trying to figure out how to get this this workforce to, you know, work for them and not against them. So they were trying everything. So I was a bit of an experiment in that. They used to um, have old sea captains was the way to go so that the, you know, the, the boyos would have some sort of respect for, the management were putting an old uh, sea captain who had years on it, you know. Um, so they tried me um, in Brisbane as an ops manager at 25, and <laughs> and I loved it. I actually um, learnt so much, uh, and I think by the end of that, um, I, I was a victim of the uh, when they kicked everyone out. They, they kicked a whole lot of um, managers out as well, just to so you know Chris Corrigan didn't have to support that payroll while. While well, everything was shut down,
1: can you go into that a little bit? What was the dispute, and what was happening pre and post? I guess that nineteen ninety eight moment.
0: Yeah, so so prior to that, um, the waterfront was heavily unionised and still is, um, but not as not as overtly. So the uh, Maritime Union of Australia pretty much had all of their workers on salaries, like forklift drivers and clerks were were upward of one hundred thousand dollars. And the manager was getting probably less than that. So you had this absolutely upside-down system where over the years the you know the waterfront had been quite a lucrative industry. So to get people to do anything in particular, they just threw money at it. And the union movement took complete advantage of that. So there was this this setup that was at some stage had to come to a uh, you know conflict. And you had PO and you had Patrick's as the two main um employers of waterfront workers in australia and chris corrigan in 98 in cahoots with the howard government um decided to uh to throw everyone out and and try to start again with a um with an army ex-army sort of uh people who had been trained up overseas to come in and, and do the scab labor if you like so um because of my background too there was uh, you know questions that i was some sort of vanguard in that system but <laughs> It wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. But the two years that I'd worked there, two and a half years before that, I was a um, you know a young ex-captain from the Army, if you like, that had been thrown into this heavily unionised workforce that really didn't have any respect for the, the management structure, took their orders from their union delegate and union sort of structure. Um, so it was quite interesting. I, I, I learned a hell of a lot uh, and I was reading a lot of um, my philosophy, if you like, started reading a lot of philosophy. I... Uh, I enjoyed it. You know, I look back on all of the different things that happened, that intensity with with the human relations, I think I found really uh, quite energising. Uh, and there was a lot of conflict, obviously, as well. But um, I said by the end of it, I could see any of my my workers these days um, and we would have a friendly conversation. So uh, to get out of that situation with um, a bit of mutual respect, I think, was um, was really, really rewarding. And then I went on to do other things i suppose in that uh, logistics industry because of um the experience that I gained on the waterfront
1: so so the opportunity once you left the army was it the fact that you that they that your previous title would give you i guess a reputation lead walking into that job was that was that how you landed it
0: it was quite interesting because they didn't it was it was quite closed, I suppose, as far as secrets. So the ad the that just went in the paper was logistics, didn't mention waterfront, didn't mention anything of where it was. Went through a whole lot of screening processes with agencies and did a whole lot of uh, the testing, you know, the personality testing and the intelligence testing and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff before probably three or four different interviews and tests and whatever, before we actually got to say, okay, we want you to go and meet the potential employer so it was, wow. it was it was hilarious because at that stage on the waterfront um the wharfies if you like uh, did all the jobs so they did security they did the uh, clerical they did the the crane they did the forklift all the jobs were filled by, um, by MUA by members so when i wrapped up to the they said go down to here's the address and then i figured out oh this is the waterfront so i, I don't know anything really about the waterfront so this is going to be very quick so of course i drove down there i was 25 26. Had me, my suit on, rocked up at the front gate, and this warfy who, you know, ran security at the front gate goes, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm here for an interview. He says, how old are you? I said, I'm oh, 25, 26. He says, you've got to be fucking joking. <laughs> 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 he says, yeah, mate, go through there. Good luck. Big laugh. thought it was the most funniest thing he'd ever seen in his life, and I thought, what the hell have I got myself in for here? So I went and had the interview with uh, the manager, and, and really, all I, you know, I, I didn't think I'd have I would have got the job because I I didn't really know that you know that industry. So really, all I said was, um, he said, "Do you know anything about stevedoring?" I said, "Well, I know that you get a whole lot of cargo, you put it on a ship, and then vice versa." <laughs> I said, "The rest of it I'll pick up," and he <laughs> he um, he uh, said, "Okay then," and, and that's that was the end of that. I thought, and then I got a phone call saying, um, "You you've got the job." So. Yeah, I think I was definitely an experiment at the time. I, like I said, I enjoyed it, and and really the the culmination of it. I think we were actually getting somewhere, but it, it was a bit too it was all too slow because I've done those sorts of um, things since, which is a, a business turnaround, and I really enjoy doing that. But it took me about two to three years to do it properly. Essentially, we ran out of the you know the whole industry just ran out of time. They, they pushed the button, and um, and out of the dispute, it looks like the MUA came back and you know had a, had a bit of a victory there but definitely patrick's had the bigger victory the industry had the bigger victory and it's a whole different um it's a whole different way that the industry works now than it used to mm-hmm. so it's one of those things where you know as far as what the public see it's very much face saving for uh, you know different mm. people involved but um what happens under the uh, p o we're, were basically left out to dry then because they tried to hedge their bets with the mua and um you know hopefully patrick's win but if they don't we'll still be fine with the union so it's probably a good two or three years there where uh, patrick's were you know far superior as far as profitability compared to P&R who still had their old agreements in place
1: yeah and and you, you sort of seen this now about how the army structure worked and then how the the corporate structure worked and and with the, you know the government sort of in cahoots under howard and but then you you moved on to to do business turnarounds and and you enjoyed it. Was was there a clash between, I guess, your personal values and understandings of things and the philosophy behind it, and then with potentially creating, I guess, more companies to succeed within a system that you you were already cynical of. Like, how did yes. you you balance that? Yeah, um, and
0: and even to today, my cynicism. Um, like back in ancient Greece when you've got the Stoics who are quite like, I probably would have been sitting over the other corner with the cynics. Um, but <laughs> uh, I, I'm very pragmatic, I guess. so um, you know, I have a, a wife, two children putting them through school that to me, uh, I need to focus on you know the income that I was bringing in and what I was doing. So my way of justifying all that to myself was was really focusing on the team. So you put me in you know in front of a team. Or with a team, and I'd try to get them to do the best that they could do, knowing full well that the best that they could do was increase a you know a profitability or bottom line for a company, as far as what my manager above me wanted to see. But from my point of view, I hope um, you know I hope that the people who did work for me felt that I really did care about them and um, was interested in getting the best results that we could as a as a team. So I really enjoyed that. I um, I focused on that sometimes at the detriment of obviously, uh, you know, moving through and, and higher management. I made a decision probably quite early after uh, after the waterfront dispute that I didn't want to be a CEO. Um, I thought that was, even though I was, you know, probably on the path to that, I made that conscious decision that, um, that, that that's not me. From that point on, I was, uh, you know, floating around in middle management, I suppose, and that's why the project management side really suited me. I could... I could just go in and, you know, do a project for a couple of years and then go and do something else. So instead of trying to progress through a company for a period of time, I could just um, pick and choose to a certain extent. So I pretty much went in between Patrick's and, and Toll for the rest of my career until I decided to get out of corporate altogether, which was only a couple of years ago.
1: All right. So what was the the turning point that created uh, that that wants to remove yourself from that from that life?
0: I think things, you know, circumstance. So, um, again, the the children had grown up, and um, you know, and they're very. I love you know, our kids. Everyone loves their kids, obviously, but but my, I'm very proud of how resilient, how self sufficient, um, how independent they are. So, um, we have a very good relationship with them, and they're they're off doing their own thing in the world. So that was. That was fantastic. So to a certain extent, every every parent knows you get to that stage of the empty nester that, um, okay, that's changed. Um, and then we had Narelle's mum who lived with us as well, and and she was ready for more company and, and probably more care. So uh, Narelle's mum moved into a, uh, a retirement village sort of setting. So it basically, you know, Narelle and I looked at each other and goes, okay, well, if we're going to do anything, this is the time. And Narelle was really the uh, the one that that pushed that and said, "Why don't we just sell everything up, get out of your corporate job, and and do something else?" So I I just said yes. (laughs)
1: Well, yeah. What's what's the decision? I mean, you talked about your pragmatism, and and it seemed like things had aligned where you weren't really risking much to do that. But it seems like you've had an ability to to grow or to realize that change is okay across your journey whereas I find so many people find themselves stuck in the path that they feel that has been placed before them and and anyone if you if you veer there's a risk of of some sort of disaster occurring I guess you said yes what was the the thought process going on there and then what have you found since that moment that I guess you could share to people that might be in a similar position, and say, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm not overly happy. I'm sort of stuck, and can see death, however many years across. But I don't see what is going to happen in my life in between that, that will revitalise me. What what can you you say to those? There's a massive group of those people around yes. that I. So what 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 message would you have? I guess from your own experience for them.
0: Yeah, this. Um so it's a combination, I suppose, from my point of view. So, like, I, I, I really like philosophy as a uh, as a discipline and, and do a lot of reading in that part. Um, so I guess, you know, Heraclitus, you can't step in the same river twice. All well, the guys that, uh, you know, things are changing, people believing in things that are certain. Um, there is no certainty, you know what I mean? So it's, it's sort of coming to acceptance with that from a theoretical point of view. And then from a practical point of view, there's redundancies that happened out of the blue in corporate life, uh, and and after every redundancy, um, something better came along. So my personal experience, if you like, was that after a you know what could be a devastating and, and life changing event, um, something better came along after that. So life went on, and not only did life go on, um, it sometimes got better. In fact, most of the times it got better. So I had these two things sort of. Uh, you know, working in tandem all the way through. So when we got to the stage where uh, I wasn't happy at all in in doing corporate, I was burnt out. I didn't want to do that anymore, if you like. And then, um, and all those other things. The moons aligned as far as the family. Uh, so when Narel did suggest, "Let's just do that," it was still a risky. It was still a risky thing. It was still, you know, quite a big decision. But because of the lead up to it. Um, I wasn't as scared of saying let's just do something different, than potentially you know five years before that or ten years before that I, I may have been. So I guess it's it's hard to to pinpoint when you know that happened. It just sort of coalesced, I suppose, into that moment. And then and what would you know? You know the same thing happened as we sold everything, took off in a caravan. All these all this work came up. So you know, looking after motels or there's a whole network out there that if you've got two arms, two legs, and even if you haven't, um, there's work. You just got to turn up to small country towns or or any sort of uh, town in Australia, and there'll be a, a motel owner or a small business owner or someone who wants to take two weeks off or a month off and is looking for a, a competent person who's trustworthy to come in and look after the you know hold the reins for for a period. So. That's pretty much what we did for about two years until Nero wanted to stop again. So um, that, was, that was freeing in itself. It just um, it took away, uh, from my point of view, I had this career of you know of being a boss, basically, being a, being a manager, being a leader. And now it was just me and, and my wife, and we were turning up and saying, we can look after this place for a while. So no one knew my background, no one knew who, who I was or what I did. So that was probably more scary to me than being part of that system that I didn't like. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I guess it was someone that owned. This was a personal, um, a personal exchange more than a, a system-based one. I guess um, it was. But
0: yeah, it's coming back to a trust in myself. I suppose that uh, you know you could do it and it would be fine. And it was. And then because of that, all, because of all of those things. When we got to Robe and we bought a shed and I sat down and scratched my head to figure out what I was going to do next, and because of all of that history, um, it's turned out to be what it has and it's been fantastic.
1: So how did you come to, like, learn about? Like, I wouldn't think if I was going on a trip that... There was an opportunity to start taking over, you know, regional rural hotels, motels, at all. How, so
0: that, that uh, was a, yeah. I had a I had a school, still got a school friend, um, Craig Gibbs, from primary school, um, <laughs> and he had said years ago what he had done is become a concierge and sort of got himself up in the hospitality industry, and he started this little side business, which was um, because he knew that industry, he knew that. Uh, relief management was a, was a thing, you know, if he could put yep. together groups of relief managers. So he said to, you know, Narelle and I a couple of years before, whenever you want to do it, do it. That was our first sort of text message. We said, um, we're thinking of going out on the road, you know, do you have any jobs for us? So he hooked us up for the first couple and, and basically once we got into that, it's just an ongoing, um, there was so much work like there was just so much work, and we did a couple of repeat jobs, and we could have just kept bouncing around to the same three or four jobs every year, or you know we could take one over here or over there. So you know, we ended up doing three months out at Yarraka, which was fantastic, at an uh, outback Queensland pub. We did five months uh, in a motel down in Sejuna. We've done um, a month at uh, in two different stints down in the Snowy River, in the. Uh, mountain country at Corion so it was just all over Australia Just is and you build the relationships with the owners and they want you back basically so I quite enjoyed that lifestyle uh, I was doing a lot of my YouTubes and um, I hadn't got into podcasting yet but you know what I mean I had time then to to work and 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 because we were debt free then make a living out of a lot less money than I needed before uh, and still do the things that I really enjoyed so it was good for me, but um, after that period, Narelle wanted to stop. She wanted to, you know, our kids uh, had had partners, um, you know, kids potentially on the way. So you start get to the next stage where you want to um, somewhere for them to come and see you, and somewhere to stay. Uh, so it was back to you know, let's get some stability back into it. So that's why we stopped at Rope, pretty much. Why Robe? Just liked it. Um, <laughs> I was a bit more systematic. I said to Norell, if we're going to stop, I want to, you know, do a, a, a for and against. So we came up with about six different places that we quite liked and Malacoota and, uh, and Road and Sunshine Coast up that way and uh, there's another one in South Australia uh, near Victor Harbour. It's um, Goldwell. So there was, you know, a couple of places we sort of said we'd been through, we quite liked yeah, in Road 1 basically that, that little contest we did but... Uh, Yeah, we just Just met some people when we were here, thought it had a good feel. And again, the experience that I've had all the way through my life is you you pick it, you go for it, and, you know, circumstances turns out that um, I don't think we could have done what we've done now anywhere else. If I'd started this type of business up in Brisbane or uh, somewhere else that we were, I don't think it would have been as successful just uh, due to circumstance and, and where things are. Uh, you know, in the
1: state and the story, it's the story behind it as well that people, um, you know, quite relate to. So, yeah, I, I, I absolutely loved Robe, one of the great places of Australia that I've ever visited. And you know, I wasn't there in peak season or anything, but just, just the the natural beauty combined with the old, the old, the, the feel of, um, yeah, of the original, you know settlers, but then you've got also the the landing point for the Chinese gold diggers and you've got um yeah you've just got so much there that the history's the history's there and and it did seem very friendly as well. So I did get that idea of the feel but it seems very friendly but also like there's risk takers there. There's a lot of businesses and people doing pretty amazing things and some different things yeah what, there from, is. from camel milk to to what you're doing to to some great breweries and yeah it's 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 just a vibrant place so what would how would you describe Robe to someone that's never been there
0: yeah i think that um, the the stone buildings and the the history that goes with the place um and the fact that it's quite eclectic so um, due to its position really like it, it's it's beautiful and it was a seaside village so it attracts a lot of um people retiring and i think that that's the start of it where you get a lot of people who have retired from the city moving there and then because of the tourism aspect the, the level of uh, accommodation and the level of food to attract the you know the melbourne public and the adelaide public is very high um so from a small regional country town point of view it's not vanilla. it's um it's got a lot of people coming in and going out so it's quite uh, cosmopolitan i guess mm-hmm. and i think that it helps any town. It doesn't matter where you live. I think that helps that mix of people coming through. Whereas, um, you know, in, in Queensland country where I was brought up, um, that, that would be my description. There, there's places that are quite vanilla. and I don't think that does them any good.
1: Would that be something that the conserve? like I'll, I know a lot of areas that don't want to change and hate the idea of change and cosmopolitan and, you know, they would actually benefit potentially from it. Um, and I often think about you know the refugee crisis going on in the world and new migrants yeah. and people that can't afford to live in cities anymore that have skills but that the regional victoria of regional australia is the is the place to um to invest in and and to try to to mix mix these worlds in a way to for mutual benefit but it seems like there's a closed I don't want to stereotype at all. I'm sure there's many, there's lots of openness, and I did see that with moving to the country, the TV show that you were featured on, where so many parts of regional Australia are doing amazing things. But it seems that there is still a sentiment to to have an unchanging world i guess what so
0: i put, put that in, in uh, context i guess and then this is the stereotype you know so so city people would say that's where the progressiveness happens and country people that's where the conservative happens and um it's really a case of um that's not true in, in either case completely so yes i would probably agree that it's more prevalent um conservatism in the country than in the city but there's pockets all the way through, and there's towns and there's different places that do different stuff. And I think that's this danger of uh, again the, the you know the, the stereotypical. So you've got Billawheeler in Queensland, which is um, for all intents and purpose a very, very uh conservative place that's out there going into bat for their refugee family that have settled and, and made a mm-hmm. you know a, a wonderful living there and doing it quite strongly because. They've made that association with those people. If you know what I mean. Yeah. So there's these aspects all the way through, and if people just um I don't know get through their prejudices, and and, and people only do that by talking to other people and understanding and, and meeting and having an experience with that other thing. You know what I mean? If that happens, it's a whole new ball game. Whereas if it doesn't happen, and and there's fear, and there's uh, people don't have the understanding, then you're going to get what you get, which is uh, you know a prevailing view of, of black and white, either way. So the, the towns that have more people coming in and out, um, and have that experience and meet those people, will have a better result than the ones that don't. It's it's pretty much as simple as that, I think.
1: Yeah, for sure. So so you've arrived at um, at Robe at this point, and you've you've said you've bought a shed. What was the plan from here?
0: Uh, that was the plan. <laughs> but narelle said um, when we stopped she made me a great deal she said i'll go and get a full-time job um because we could Um, narelle never could do that if you know what i mean like we had house and the kids and the education and everything so i had to get a um, stay at the level that i was staying at um and then you know narelle um, was at home with the kids which was fantastic and she did go and do some part-time stuff as well but she could never be the the breadwinner in that situation. So now we're in a situation where we're debt-free, we didn't have to live on much, so Narelle could go out and get a full-time job and I didn't have to. So that was fantastic for both of us. when I mean, you know, Narelle all of a sudden took on this new role um, and left me in the shed that we just bought, figuring out what to do with it. So I couldn't have um, had that freedom uh, and openness um, anywhere else to do what we did and it's turned out you know great but we didn't know that we just uh had the shed i'd seen the precious plastic stuff on youtube and i thought yep that's what i'm going to do uh, and we went from there pretty much then after 12 months because it, it took off so well and i always wanted it to be a um a viable small business i didn't want it to be a a hobby i wanted if i was going to do it i wanted to do it properly so after twelve months, Narelle had to give up her job and come and join me, and, and you know, to make the business take it to the next step and make it as as successful as it's been. So, so now we're you know we're fully committed to the to the same end. But it didn't start that way. It was just uh, Narelle, we stop. She gets a full time job, and I go and buy a shit and figure out what to do.
1: So what were your um core beliefs, values what was what were the principles that you sort of lived by internally and how were they able to conjure up in your in your actions Did you see a gap between what you were doing just before this business I guess and what you believed in and did that formulate and help you make the choice to to get into the precious plastics I guess?
0: I think so. I do um, I've always been uh, keen on the environment. It's probably not the right word. I've never been a um, an avid sort of environmentalist as such. But it just makes sense. Um, like I, 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 I can't reconcile myself with the fact that you would destroy the world you live on for profit. That doesn't make sense to me. It's something that a species should do, let alone a person. If you know what I mean. So. Mm. I guess it's coming from more a holistic doing something what we consider you know good, I suppose, um, whether it's a plastic problem or the uh, climate change or whatever, that just seems a, a no-brainer for a species, but it's not to say that's what we're going to do. We're probably going to do the opposite, but <laughs> it, it just, from my point of view, doesn't seem like uh, a smart thing to do, drive, you know, resource-limited world into the ground so that you can say, you know, at one point we made a 15% increase in financial year, whatever. It just doesn't make much sense, I suppose. So from my point of view, um, I don't think changing that is, is is something that one person or two people or even a group can do easily, if at all, but you've got to do what you can do. I, I guess that's where I come from is uh, what can I do? Um, doing... Something is better than doing nothing. That's the basis. Of it. I don't have too much uh, deeper thought patterns than that. I like I like people. I like the human race in general. Um, I think we need to do things a lot differently to survive. And I think that um, if I can at least live my life that way, then I will be happy.
1: Yeah, so, so you said earlier that you actually put your hat in the ring for government and that it didn't work out when when was that in this um in this journey
0: so that was um or in brisbane um i had run for a state and a federal seat i knew that i wasn't going to get in i guess because it was for uh, we had the greens uh, a lesser party i did i got interested in politics while i was reading a lot of my philosophy before that i really hadn't paid too much attention to the politics um so i uh, would vote um, National Party coming from where we came from in Queensland and not yeah. think too much about it. And then I got into it. And I looked at a lot of policy and I looked at where my mindset was and what made sense to me. And I went from pretty much what you consider now far right to far left overnight. <laughs> yeah. And even that terminology, you know, annoys me. So because, you know, the Jacobins sat on one side of the room and the uh, the quasi royalists sat on the other side of the room, in the French Revolution to come up with this terminology and, mm. and use it at will, you know. But to me, I guess I was I was looked at with a bit of suspicion from probably the people um, from the political point of view with my army and rugby playing and sort of corporate background and then from the other side of the fence looked at with complete suspicion because, you know, this person who wears a tie and runs a corporation is telling me that, uh, you know, the climate change exists and we need to do something different. So I was in no man's land to a certain extent because of the fact that we look in extremes, we look at right and left. So and I don't think I fit in either of those. Uh, to get into politics, though, so you really need a strong identity to become an independent or you need a major party. And if you go to a major party, then you don't, you know, you fit into a system. Mm. We're seeing, we're seeing where that leads now. So let's take the Labour Party, for example. They want to try to retain votes in Queensland. So they say, yeah, coal's good. And then they want to get voted in everywhere else. And they say no, coal's bad. So um while they keep doing that, I don't think they're going to get voted back in. And then you've got the, you know, the other guys now making a miraculous turnaround and saying that uh, climate change is a real thing. We've told you for the last 20 years it's it's not a real thing, and you know, it, it's it's all fine, don't worry about it, now because the economy's changed and the economics of it's changed, now it's a good thing and you all need to go on this journey with this. So it's complete um, well, it's hypocrisy, I suppose, and that's that spin that's constant. And, and people see it and people know it, but people are, are quite ambivalent, I suppose, to how the whole thing works. I just don't see us getting out of this mess until um, until more voting for independent people parties, smaller stuff comes through. Otherwise, uh, the big two parties uh, are interested in keeping each other as the major two parties first and then and then uh, lining their pockets probably be second and then um, maybe looking after the uh <laughs> the people that they're supposed to be representing third or fourth or maybe even fifth. So I know that's cynical, but to me <laughs> that's how I see it.
1: Yeah, and I and I think more and more people are are seeing it that way. And um yeah, I often just sort of go between if everybody understood how things worked and realized what the media were doing and what certain parties were saying and or people within parties were saying was, you know, rubbish, or you know, look at a bit of history, look at some act, you know, that maybe we'd be able to get somewhere. But but then again, you look at something like climate change, and for many years there's been so many Experts and scientists and, and people in all fields, you know, telling us that it was there and and there was nothing done and and now, as you said, because the economics fits and and maybe because it it's electable now, you know, to to go on that platform, um, it seems to yeah. yeah have won people, but it, it it's almost broken. You know, not it's not about what's best for the people; it's about what gets you elected, and that that already is broken because as we know. Th- and I, 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 do people? A lot of people make poor choices, and whether that's circumstance or, or or whatever, but a lot of people aren't always making the best choice for not only themselves but for for the world or community. So to just go with what gets you elected on the day, it just isn't right. And and how do we get democracy to thrive in a new way is something I'm concerning and thinking about a lot at the moment. But um it's interesting
0: it is but i guess the more i study history and you know'm a student all that the, the more i guess cynical and um, worried i suppose although i don't i've got past that to a certain extent but i don't i don't see much hope um i've seen there's not much new that's happening in in the world um compared to what's already happened as far as you know what we've done in history and epochs and how we think and how groups of people think uh, so from a philosophical point of view, I guess I've moved through the stages uh, and I, I quite like the existentialist, I guess, but Camus is probably my favourite and um, I think I'm, I'm concentrating on being the absurd man where I know that everything's uh, going to hell in a handbasket but, uh, you know, do your best anyway, really.
1: <laughs> well, well, yeah, and I, and I think that's, that's very – it's a noble thing and I heard a saying recently that said um, – Grieve globally, thrive locally, and it seems like you're you've sort of accepted that. You know, you, you think about the plight of the world, and you and I and I do too. Sort of despair, but what do you do? Do you become a nihilist and and I don't know. What what do you do? What do you do? Do you try to become think- an ex- extremist and and change it yourself through violent means, which never works, or do you just sort of give it up? And and there's a in between space which is making. I guess, your world and community better through your actions, I guess? I think you've
0: got to, well, from my point of view, you've got to move through nihilism. If you don't, then um, you, you get stuck back into uh, the stereotypes or, or religion or, you know, or whatever system or dogma you want to stick by. I think you've actually got to move through nihilism. If you get stuck in nihilism, that's a dangerous place as well. But mm. moving beyond that, and, and that's why I quite like... Um, Simone de Beauvoir and sort of Camus, you know what I mean, where they and Nietzsche, where they they see that quite clearly, and they go, okay, then <laughs> move through that and then get on to this. And I think your your morals and your ethics are yours, and I don't think that they should come from. I don't think you should be given them. I think you should own own them yourself. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I think so many people. I look at something like. um, What's happening now in Melbourne with the the vaccine mandate and and all of that? And I'm not I don't know where where you come from, but from my personal perspective is that the science is in, just like in climate change, and COVID's a bad disease, and we should try and do whatever it takes to um to not get it and not spread it and and protect our vulnerable. And but then I also I love the idea of you know get people vaccinated if you know informed consent, all of that. But then and i almost understand an idea or a mandate so we can but i think that the mandates there to open and to get the economy going rather than to 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 bring people along with you and and people to understand why it's an okay idea or, or a good idea to be vaccinated and and so i'm actually falling down the the trap of of having i guess ethics thrust upon me um mm-hmm. And just accepting it. So now I've I'm really looking deeply, and I've gone back to something that I'm doing right now. But there's this, and I guess the quest of what does democracy mean? What's human rights? What's um yeah. what's health? What's science? What what are all these things? I've got to I've actually started to unpack my own ethics and morals so that I can own them and then start afresh with that foundation. And that's I guess this podcast idea too is is to explore that because there's so much noise and um, it's really hard to actually find find your, I guess, your centre.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, to me, that's why I love sort of, I love history because none of this, none, nothing's new, I guess, when, when you <laughs> when you study history. So, mm-hmm. you know, Rousseau, this is the argument that, that Rousseau brought, the, the noble savage, that, that all people aren't actually, you know, bad. It's the society that, that contaminates them and then you've got, the opposite view that says, "Well, you need a society and rules, uh, you know, the Leviathan, to to basically say that that's how you control people, and you've got to give them their, the, the, you know, their rules and their ethics and whatever. And for the greater good of society, you need to conform to these certain things. and I, And both sides are are actually are right in a way, and 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 where you are now is exactly the same sort of argument that you can see it from one side and you can see it from the other. But to me the greater good of the society, if it's well explained and like you said, the science is in comes that's what you living in a society, that's the cost it comes to. Because if you don't want to do that, if you want to be completely free, then that's fine. Your neighbour comes over and you know knocks you on the head and takes all your money. That's part of it as well. That's, that's not having the rules and not having the police force and not having the other things that you've got to give away to become a citizen. So it's it's that argument at that level. So the people who are out there saying, you know, I don't want to do this and freedom of speech and everything else are not taking the other side of the argument into account whatsoever. It it comes at a cost. So your perceived freedoms come at things that you can't do. So you have a driver's licence for a reason. You have to do, you know, tests for this or that for a reason. It's just becoming part of a, a citizen in a society. And if you don't do that, you can be completely free wherever you want. But, you know... That's when the uh, the strong man rules,
1: basically. <laughs> and and I often make that argument, absolutely. And it's like you go to places like certain parts of the US or South Africa or, or parts of the world where there's gated communities. There's you know private armed guards. There's you know big two Dobermans in your yard. There's and then, and and where do we get from there? We get private armies, and we've seen that through feudalism. You know, you you get the. Yeah. You get you 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 are forced to ask someone that has no morals to protect you, and and they'll exploit you to the hilt. And I and that Leviathan really captured me. That part of philosophy to understand that maybe we do need this this structure there to band us together. And although it's a big scary thing, I guess the fact that we can see it and that we there is some element of Maybe it's too big to to be too um to be too ruthless, you know.
0: <laughs> Back in Plato's day, <laughs> and, and and that's been, you know, widely criticized now too, but the benevolent sort of you know dictator or, or philosopher king type thing was the best he could come up with. Uh, he looked at democracy and you know said, well, people run the show big if the crowd run the show we're in a big big heap of trouble. So there's been examples of all of those going awry and some being successful, it's really to the leadership of how these things work and I think that's our big problem at the moment as we discussed before. I, I don't think we we have that uh, competency of leadership and we, we, we don't have that not because of the people particularly, it's just the end result of the system we've created. So the people who are at the top are always going to work their way to the top because that's how it's set up for them to do it. You know, that that's why I despair, I suppose, because changing systems is a hell of a lot harder than, than changing people. Yeah. On the other yeah. side of that argument is we, we live in the best possible time in history. Like right? the the conditions for a human being, and, and obviously there are different examples all the way across the world, but for, for human beings in general, we live now. You know, with the the most freedoms and the most wealth and the most sort of equality than any other point mm. in our history doesn't mean it's all <laughs> it's all that good, um, but it means that um, it is what it is. So we are actually at, at, at the pinnacle of um, you know individual freedoms as a race of people than we've been any other time in history. So that's good, but. It still comes with all of the, you know, diversity and there's people still getting persecuted and um enslaved and, and everything else. And there's people, you know, making a hell of a lot of money out of other people's labor or not labor, basically. So that's how we roll as a species. But don't don't get me wrong, at this point in history is we're we're doing better than you know other points in history, if you like, as far as individuals. There's that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and the and the trajectory seems to have taken a turn south with and i think that's being seen but but we have to also remember you know um i'm sort of reading i've i've looked at many times and and studied the diary of anne frank but i'm reading it you know front to back properly at the moment and um thinking about people that talk about being persecuted with the lockdown for their own health versus yeah. what she was dealing with and And I even, uh, you heard, you know, you mentioned Camus earlier and, um, the plague, one of the great, great books and, and looking at the parallels between how the world sort of looked at COVID and what happened in, in his, um, his novel about the Algerian town that, that, you know, copped the bubonic plague, it came back and, and, I was just amazed that, as you said earlier, history repeats. And, yeah, it's, it's just something to, to, for people to look into, maybe to take a step back and to get, get into the classics, look at history, look at philosophy, look at persecution, what genocide really means, what apartheid really means, and actually understand it before diving in and, you know, becoming violent. or Yeah, we, we've got to take that step back and, and create a bit of distance as a society, to see where we're actually at.
0: Yeah, that, like I said, that's why I love it. It's just there's nothing nothing new. I mean, you can see these things and take examples all over the place, And I guess all it tells me is it's going to happen again at some stage too. So mm. I think we're a bit naive if we think that we're not going to get into another major conflict at some time. We haven't really been out of war, you know, since, well, since Mesopotamia. So um it's sort of in our DNA. So yeah. If you have a long period of peace, then it just tells me that, in some stage, it's not going to that's um, going to break, unfortunately.
1: So we're on that, um, I guess, pessimistic but realistic note. But then there's also the the idealist that's within you and someone that uh, that takes charge and action. So, what yeah, is... Yeah, I see myself
0: as a as a pessimist. I know I
1: know in the definition of the word, I probably come across as that. I'm, I'm really quite
0: optimistic. Yeah, uh, but. Um, yeah, I think real, realist is probably the uh, the best description in that. No, I'm, I'm a very um, positive person, I guess, overall, but uh, it doesn't mean I think that yeah, we have much hope. I just think that <laughs> I'm allowed to do what I'm allowed to do and at the best of my ability and, and what I think is the right thing to do. And, I, you know, that's a, that's a powerful thing in its own. There's nothing stopping me going the other way and and being quite uh, quite depressed, I suppose, um, and overwhelmed and there's nothing stopping me doing what I think I'm doing, which is being quite positive and, and, you know, taking as many people with us on the journey for the the plastic problem that we have that we can. So I think it's a personal choice which way you want to do and how you want to live your life. Uh, I think when you come to that, and I have come to that sort of understanding, then it's not a case of optimism or, or pessimism, it's a case of uh, I personally think I can live my life this way, whether it changes anything or makes a difference. Um, I don't know, or, or, or care to a certain extent, I suppose. I just, um, if it does, and that's great, and if it doesn't, you know, not so much as opposed to the sort of anxiety of saying, okay, we really need to change this and we're heading off a cliff, and what can I do to change it? Um, I've, I think, I've moved a bit beyond that, I guess. And if this changes, it' great, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. So um, that's what's going to happen anyway. <laughs> I can just do what I can do, I guess.
1: So, so what is it that you are doing? What go into depth with your work with trying to remove the plastic waste and to and to do something with it?
0: Yeah, so it's a very overwhelming problem in itself. I don't think
1: people quite grasp how big a
0: problem the plastic actually is. It's it's, it's in. Our food chain now. So microplastics are in our food chain. Um, the extent of waste plastic over the world is uh, phenomenal, and we're churning it out at you know greater rates all the time. So, as per usual, we get to a crisis before we we start doing something. And look, I think we'll make big changes in the next ten years towards this problem, which we do as a species. I mean, humans are are quite um, you know technically. ingenious, really, so we'll come up with lots of different stuff that will help this problem. Uh, It's frustrating that you get to a point where, you know, you actually got to notice it in your rivers choking your uh, (laughs) your food supply before you go, okay, we've got to do something, but that's how we roll as well. So what we're doing is, you know, on a small scale, we've recycled five tonnes so far of of bread tags um, into quite artistic and and functional homewares, We've had interest from country road. We've done stuff with them. So we're sort of we're ticking those boxes as far as the corporates now starting to change direction and getting into the circular economy. We're starting to showcase other makers in that area with the circular economy. So we're at the vanguard of what I consider the next big industry, if you like, which is is looking at our resources, recycling them as much as possible and um and reducing our consumerism of uh, single use stuff especially the problem is that that's not going to do it on its own there's a lot of other things that have to happen so i guess what i'm saying before with my, my philosophy on life is i know what i'm going to do is just a really small part of what everyone else and uh, society as general has to do whether we do that or not i don't know but i can't control all that all i can control is what i can do so i may as well get started and um and make the changes ourselves, what, you know, we can control, really.
1: And, and to be that example, because it's all well and good to to talk or to wish or to, to you know, uh, whatever it is, but to actually do and to show that it can be done, And I guess you took that from the initial, I guess, yeah, material so around, yeah. I don't get, um, I mean, a lot
0: of my, I live in a, <laughs> I live in a different world to a certain extent where a lot of my role models are from ancient history. But um, the the person who inspired me was Dave Hackens from Precious Plastic. When I seen that, uh, and it's, again, it's all action. He, he had got his designer hat on because that's what he did. He was a designer. He designed these machines that you could make out of scrap material. He then went and built them himself. He put that on YouTube and said, here's how you build these things. Off you go, you know, and do it. And I just thought it was fantastic. Still, I was, I was quite worried can I do this? Like, you know, I need to figure out how to weld and all these other things. But um, he's showing me, he's leading the way. If he can do that, then I could do that. And then, like you said, other people follow along as well. And yeah, action is definitely the, uh, the thing that changes um, people's behaviour. I used to, uh, one of my tricks, I suppose, I'll call it a trick now and my ex-employees are watching or listening. (laughs) I used to, when I got into a place, go and pick up litter every day um, on my walk-arounds and I'd I'd do it for, I reckon, two to three months before people would just start doing that. You know what I mean? Like it's, Mm. to me, it's just a psychological trick really, but um, it's just I wanted, you know, if I wanted something to to happen i would take a long-term approach to it and i said okay well, you know there's litter everywhere the place looks like a shit fight instead of putting out a minute saying you know people clean up your workplace i would walk around for two or three months and clean up their workplace you know for them pretty much and not say anything about it and, and it, i just enjoyed that process of watching people slowly start doing that uh, sometimes subconsciously but at the end of six months we'd have a clean workplace you know it's just it's
1: how people are wired, basically. Yeah, so so you're at that point now with your precious plastics but also the the bread tags. Now there's there's two components of that. Not only is it recycling an unrecyclable um, item or something that was often just in the waste process, you, you've created a circular economy through that, upcycled, I guess, these things, but there's also a, a charity attached to this as well.
0: Yeah, so the Aussie Bread Tag for Wheelchairs um, found us really and said we we are collecting these you know, single-use plastics. No one in Australia is recycling. We had to we send them back to South Africa at the moment. Um and the and the recycler over there gives them money to buy wheelchairs. So I took over that role, if you like, from the South African recycler um, and became the Australian recycler. So now the the charity collects all of these bread tags around Australia, sends them all to me, um, and I upcycle them. So because of that source of, of single-use plastic, I was mucking around with all different types of plastic, so I just really focus on that now. And and polystyrene is not uh, really commercially recycled in Australia, so it, it falls through the, the gap, I guess. So yeah, we've um, now slipped into that. We, you know, the, the business, uh, I, I donate to the charity for the, the bread tags. They buy wheelchairs with that donation money. They've now done 40 wheelchairs, and they're looking at expanding into other areas as well. Uh, So they're they're happy. I'm really happy with that relationship that we have with them. Um, So it works well for both of us. And, uh, you know, the the country road collaboration from the other end, uh, because a big part of the circular economy is not just recycling and making something, it's actually getting people to buy that something. Uh, And until that gets a lot better... You'll have a lot of you know, pioneers in this area, I suppose, going broke or not making that viable business because people aren't buying their products. So we're really focused on getting a quality product that um, that looks good, is functional, will do the job and is you know priced right, if you like, for comparable sort of stuff that you buy. So the circular economy from our point of view is a lot about the the marketing and and getting people to respect and, and buy that product, not just because they think it's a good thing to do, but because it's a good product to buy. So that's the change we're sort of trying to make as well and our collaboration with Country Road has gone a long way to doing that as well, so it's, it's, that's been good. So pieces are fitted together, I guess, you know, in quite a short period of time for us. But our you know, our product, I think, is a, is a piece of art. It's also a functional bowl. It's also, you know, it can go in the microwave, it can go in the dishwasher. And at the end of its life, you can send it back to me, and I can recycle it again. So, I think I'm putting something out there that um, that meets my criteria. I guess there's something that's useful.
1: This sort of push, I guess, is exciting because not only are we removing plastic from the that would just go to waste, not only are we creating more of a circular economy where you know we are upcycling people are more interested in buying great products but there's also a that artisan mindset that you've created something you've created the mold the the everything with your own hands to then to build you see it you know your hands have touched it and then it goes off and there's something meaningful in that we've lost that connection we've lost that connection with I guess our own creativity and ability to to produce we're just movers now we're just almost you know lumps of flesh you know doing the bidding for some far away the system once again whereas this brings us back in touch with what we can do
0: it's quite purposeful i I feel like there's a a purpose like you know come up with your own purpose and i think this is actually you know feels purposeful feels like you're doing something that is useful and you're right I, i i really enjoy that creative aspect and people People enjoy the fact that they come into the shop in Australia and especially, you know, a rural small town in Australia with a bread tag and walk out with something that's made on site from that small item. So because of the way the world works, a lot of that's not happening anymore, that artisan sort of process. Like you said, you'll send this bit off to that and that bit off to here and that goes over to here and comes halfway around the world back at you. That's just the way... We've set things up with efficiency and economies, and you know profitability. That's how it works. You, you scale everything up. So to get that sort of um, feeling again, uh, which is you know used to used to be quite prevalent in a time before we had the industrial revolution and the major corporations type of stuff, where you you make something on site all the way through the process. Um, yeah, it, it feels good. So it's a, it's a very human thing, I think, which is uh, what you're touching on.
1: Mm. And our plastic problem—we've sort of outlined it. What, what's happening? That you're, you, you mentioned that we're we're on the way to potentially making some positive changes to our to our plastic problem. What is a quick outline of the problem? I know you've got your chemistry degree, and, and um, there's a lot of chemistry within plastics. You know, all the numbers at the back of each plastic item—they mean something and are important. What? What's happening with those numbers, and and where are we at, and I guess where are we going in a positive fashion moving forward with our relationship with plastic?
0: There's two things happening. I guess is firstly people are realising there is a problem. So public opinion is, is always important in these um, in, in change. It's always important, which is which is gives you some hope. But uh, economics is really the whole thing of what you do about it. So if governments start changing levers and so, you know, getting rid of single use or legislating out, then what that means is there's a penalty associated for business. So they need to move in a certain way and do certain things to make sure that their business is viable in the future. So that's what will will really drive significant change. Um, At the moment, virgin plastic, which is made from the petroleum industry, so made from oil, is cheaper than recycled plastic. So the economics of making something from plastic uh, straight away <laughs> is working in reverse so it's really about those levers changing so that um making something from recycled plastic is is the same cost um, and hopefully in the future cheaper than making it from uh, virgin plastic and things like it you know you um carbon tax and things like that, that's what they're designed to do. That's what those levers do. They're economic levers that put that start costing in that that um, pollution that comes with, you know, digging up fossil fuels and, and putting it out into the world. And when you do that, the economics change and then the world changes. So it's again the end of economics and those levers are starting to, to change. And like I said, with the circular economy, if you start having more people look for and buy things from the circular economy than from the other one, then businesses get on board. And that's why I get excited when places like Country Road start looking our way because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. When they, the big ones start doing that, uh, everyone follows. So you always and your coals are starting to, you know, figure out that selling little plastic toys to kids is not such a good idea anymore. And they'll start turning around and, and looking at recyclable and circular economy and single use. All of those things will start to happen. Um, But it's a big ship to turn around, and it will take two to three years. And then you've also got things like your energy to waste segment. So it's quite easy chemically to change a plastic back to an oil um, or a fuel uh, into an energy source, if you like. So through either incineration or pyrolysis or gasification, any of those processes, there's going to be a lot of uh, waste to energy stuff come in. And then you've got reduction. So it is the three, that's you know, it's reduced, reused, recycle. You've got to do those three in concert to get any sort of results. But all that's coming, and I think that will probably come quicker than uh, more of the climate change sort of action because it's been politicised, whereas the plastic problem hasn't been politicised yet, and that's another reason it will probably change quicker.
1: Yeah, and hopefully we we get to a consensus that's... Bipartisan with these things, rather than them becoming a political issue for so long, like something like climate change, which or COVID in parts of the world, or you know, mask, whatever it is, there seems to be. Um, as soon as
0: you put that into that football, as soon as you put that topic into that political, you know, arena, refugees, for example, that's it. That's it's it's then becomes pick a team. Whereas mm. at the moment, plastic is not on either side. Both sides are saying it's a problem, so that's good. But that—that
1: that is the problem we have at the moment. The world's becoming more divisive, more black and white, and that's not a good. Thing. Yes, pigeonholes coming
0: up again. We've pigeonholed Pigeon all of these
1: holes. ideas. Really? <laughs> I'll, um, I'll send you a signed copy. <laughs> oh please, please. I'll, I'll, um, yeah, definitely want to want to have a look. And um, no, it's amazing that you've done that. So, you've really what I've noticed across this this conversation is you—you understand the system that we're in and you've worked through that nihilism you've been pragmatic um to to actually come up with solutions that you've seen that you can make a difference and and along the way you've attempted things to to try to shift the system through government through calling out you know corruption in a way to to all all the way through and fallen in this i guess a sweet spot which is that yeah, we, we we just need to control what we can control and yeah, be a, I guess a little light, you know, across this expanse of darkness um, that we find ourselves at times. So I think that's an amazing um message and, and it brings me a moment of clarity to sort of realign my actions again and and um yeah to sort of to target our psychology to just keep being told though no, just do do what you need to, do what lights you up and yeah, I uh, thank you for that. No, you're welcome, <laughs> um, Brad. So, is there anything else you wanted to touch on before the last couple of questions?
0: No, not really. I think I'm covered off pretty well in that in that journey as well, which sort of gets to my uh, uh, probably the question you're going to ask me at the moment of clarity. I uh, I stopped drinking, and that that was um, probably the biggest change that I've made in my life, and it was uh, one of the best ones as well. So that's me to a place where my complete focus was looking back and saying this question of what makes you happy if you like Uh, and the answer is pretty simple if you go back and look at your life moments that you remember and enjoy and have good memories of it it normally involves loved ones and family and, and those sorts of things and it rarely involves uh you know what job you've got and what's in your bank account so once your mind lets go, I suppose, of all those things and, and statuses and figures that out, then um, all I knew from that point forward is I, you know, I wanted to um, be the best husband I could for my wife really and, and stay with her and that changed a whole lot of things that I was doing and, and how I was uh, living my life. So I've had moments all the way through that, you know, are traumatic, I guess, at the time, but they they always lead to better things, so the moment of clarity definitely that was one and like others but it, it's what it told me is how powerful the mind is i guess i reflect a lot on things that i used to think things that i think now and you, you would hold some of those thoughts in the past so strongly so, so you know it's a matter of certainty and and to know that <laughs> down the track you know complete bullshit, is to me quite amazing that uh, i look at people and where they're coming from i think in a different way and because i've probably been there at some stage as well Mm. so i don't uh i don't blame people i guess i just i think i understand them more even though it can be frustrating and um, you have a difference of opinion but and knowing that my opinion at the moment is going to change in the future you know what i mean so it can be it could be different in 10 years time than it is now so your mind is it sort of um loosens its grip on you, it lets a lot more stuff flow in uh, and, and stuff that you never have let flow in before, you know, changes your life really. So that's probably my moment of clarity is uh, when people say open-mindedness, I sort of get what they're talking about
1: now. Oh, amazing. Um, absolutely amazing that you've, yeah, been able to to work through that and have that mindset. Now, Brad, for people that want to get to know The work that you're doing, get to know you, um, maybe visit you in row. What can what can people do right now that, or in the coming months when when they start to travel, that can help uh, support the work that you do, or or just get in touch and um, learn a bit more.
0: We've got our we've got our online um, shop as well, and if you go into our website, there's a lot of information there and videos, stuff that we're doing. So really, on our socials is probably good. So Instagram, uh, transmutation underscore proprietary underscore limited on Insta, I think, and transmutation, reduce, reuse, recycle on Facebook and www.transmutation.com.au. All of that's got tonnes of information on us and stuff you can get, stuff you can do. I mean, just collecting your bread tags and giving it to the charity, that's a, that's a good start.
1: Thanks so much for the chat, Brad. It's been amazing, uh, uh, eye-opening and absolute pleasure. So I'm, I'm glad we've um, connected and, and been able to have such a, a great chat.
0: Yeah, no, I've, I've enjoyed it. I rarely get to sit down and talk about all my my rubbish in a line like that, so it's good.
1: (laughs) If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.